and welcome to Lightworks, a podcast where I sit down and discuss various aspects of creativity within music production with artists, musicians, and scholars. Today I'm talking to Kirsten Hermes. Kirsten is a senior lecturer in music performance technology at the University of Westminster. Her research is contributing towards measuring and modeling perceived quality of music mixes. She's also a music producer and electronic artist herself, going under the name Naoki, and she recently just released a book with Routledge Publishing called Performing Electronic Music Live. Here is my conversation with Kirsten. Enjoy. Hi, Kirsten. Thank you for coming on. Um, Hello. Yeah. So what, what was your like musical upbringing like leading to what you, you do now? Oh, wow. That's a really, uh, that's a really long story. So I first started, <laughs> I know, right? It's always like, I don't remember. No, but basically I started playing violin when I was six years old. So I kind of started off from a very sort of classical background, uh, played in various orchestras, um, <clears throat> did all that. But when I was about 17, I realized I really kind of want to write songs. Uh, I learned piano as well, but I got to a point where I really wanted to sort of create whole arrangements and not just kind of play. I mean, I love playing violin, uh, but it's difficult to sort of, you know, play 10-track harmony or or drums <laughs> on the violin, obviously. So so I was kind of a bit restricted in terms of creating, you know, sort of having complete production. So that's, that's what got me into production. Uh, and I'm from Germany, so at, at the time, I mean, this is a is a while ago, but at the time, I didn't really know many people that were into production. It wasn't like as popular as it is now. But through a friend of a friend, I sort of got my hands on Cubase, started experimenting. And I think it was that sense of control that really got me interested in electronic music, because it's like I, as one person, get to create a whole track. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and then you know, went to uni, studied production eventually did my PhD in sort of sound perception because I was really interested in, uh, you know, automatic mixing and how humans actually perceive quality in, in electronic music or in music mixing in general. Um, and I don't know, it just kind of kept evolving into different directions. Like now at the moment I'm kind of uh, creating, I'm quite influenced by games, by, by the games industry, by things like anime and all the kind of nerd culture which I think it's just because of the friends that I have. So I've, I've been creating music with retro games, consoles. I create graphics. So I suppose this, this idea of, of creating my own music has evolved into creating my own sort of like audio visual outputs. And, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a long story. I'm sure there's a lot more stuff to it, but I, I'll, I think that's a fairly just summary of what's happened so far. Nice. So were, was your family musical at all or? Yeah. So my, uh, my parents, they both played instruments. So father uh, is a, was playing cello, not, not professionally, but you know, it's always been sort of a part of, of my upbringing and, and my mother is a plays piano. Uh, so yeah. So same thing. I mean, they both um, have been playing kind of instruments and being into music on and off. Not really. There wasn't any kind of producers or any sort of professional musicians, but I was certainly exposed to it. So what kind of led to the sort of the or- origins of Nyoki? And that's sort of, I don't know if you consider it like a persona or just like musical project. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of, I suppose it is a musical persona and, and it's really interesting. I mean, I, I talk, I talk to my students quite a lot about avatars and, and, you know, of course, in terms of marketing, having an avatar is useful, but I think it's also 
psychologically useful because you get to condense one part of your personality and sort of exaggerate it, which which can be oddly therapeutic. I mean, I don't, you know, walk around every day being Naoki, but I suppose Naoki is quite quite bright and vibrant, quite sort of more over the top <laughs> than I, I may normally be. But um, yeah, I think, I mean, several things. I mean, it's just the, the, the nerd culture thing and a lot of my friends, I, I think, has fed into that. I've also got synesthesia, so it's kind of that audiovisual connection between uh, things I see and things I hear and just the, the general sensory experiences that I've got, which made me feel compelled to to create something like quite vibrant. I guess maybe that's a way of putting it. Well, you said your your influence was games. I'm just wondering, like, what are there any like specific games um, or specific game soundtracks or anything like that? Uh, yeah, I mean... I- I think it's. I think just the idea of of video games in general is interesting because mm. I, I like I like the fact that or just you know three D graphics are interesting for me because you get to create your whole own world from scratch, which I'm trying to to do. And I like games where that theme plays a part. So I mean, I'm I'm a huge Minecraft geek. Nice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I love playing Elder Scrolls, which is like I mean I don't know if the listeners of this podcast know that much about games but generally i guess i like games that allow for a lot of exploration of Mm. really big worlds that i can just sort of like walk around in and do stuff um so yeah that kind of thing uh, it's it's really interesting to me so is it kind of like the more because you said yeah i'm thinking just like skyrim and also yeah yeah. minecraft is it just kind of like the ambient nature yeah of those tracks especially uh yeah, and I love. I mean, I love. Oh, I love the soundtracks of those games. I, I wouldn't say that my music sounds anything like those soundtracks, but but it's definitely. I think it's like a, a great space to just sort of relax and, and explore my creativity, and also in terms of uh, just the visuals of those games, uh, which I which I really enjoy. I mean, there's a couple others as well. I suppose like things like Stardew Valley uh, was one I, I played. <laughs> I played for right again. It's kind of quite quite you can build your own stuff and you know the sims similar thing uh you know i like animal crossing all of those kind of like games where you're sort of free to do what you want i think that's that's something that i really like that's i don't know that's that's interesting well because there's like a layer of sort of not it this is not necessarily like interactivity with the music itself but the the music sets up that sort of like open feeling i guess yeah for interactivity yeah yeah no it does do you play any games <laughs> oh yeah yeah yeah. i mean i've been into like ludo well I, i've done some stuff in like ludo musicology and whatnot and but um i had a housemate who was like a game designer and oh great like i i was a, a you know fairly casual gamer and then once we started living together it was like <laughs> knee deep and just the actual like <laughs> like that's all we would talk about all day and then you know that's just like I guess it's a sort of secondary research interest, but also just something. If, if I'm not writing music, I'm probably playing games. Ah, awesome. Yeah. That's probably what I'm doing. So, Yeah, and then I suppose by extension, the thing that I'm, I'm beginning to be interested in, I mean, I need to do way more research, but like I suppose you have all this stuff with performing in VR and, and mm-hmm. like creating. And I've got, I know, I know some friends called Cynthia. They're sort of two sisters from Boston and they've created or they've, they've worked with someone to create this virtual spaceship. So they they perform in VR in, in this spaceship and they've got their avatars that are sort of motion controlled. And 
uh, all of that stuff I find really fascinating because it's just so so expressive and kind of weird <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, I knew someone who's working with a few others. There's like a VR lab in in Bristol, and oh, yeah. there was a game that I was that he was playing around with where it was like virtual instruments that you could pull out and he made a point that i i I'm constantly and we kind of had arguments about or he was like because a lot of the instruments in it is you know it's just like a keyboard drums basic stuff but he was like why does it have to since it's like a virtual space like why would it need to be in the shape of a keyboard or a drum like it literally be oh yeah, yeah literally anything but in my head it's like as a musician who's just already familiar with that stuff yeah yeah it's like if i see a guitar it's like oh i know what to do but if it's this abstract sort of i don't know object or like model or something it's like you know unless it's like super intuitive i don't know what to do with that so oh it's interesting i feel like for me because i've got synesthesia almost like find it off-putting to see what things actually look like because like i do i do sort of perceive sounds as as colored different shaped blobs and so like i almost find that 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 when i see what the instrument really looks like or what the software instrument looks like it's like super impulsed and so it's actually kind of distracting more than anything like for example what sort of annoyed me is that in the current version of logic there's like you can color your your tracks in different colors but you used to have like a wheel where you could pick any possible color but now um yeah now you can, can no longer have sort of pale colors <laughs> and that sort of bothered me because i can't um yeah for me there are some really clear representations of of what sounds would look like but i think it's quite probably quite personal not necessarily something that true yeah like other people would perceive in that in that exact same way that w- that's just really difficult to even design like in a any sort of game space because then it's like because like you said it's so personal that it's like <laughs> you would have to do it yourself almost i don't know that's yeah and i've definitely seen like certain artists do similar things like that i think maybe like bjork and yeah other people i don't know like that's definitely like an avenue but like that's yeah because music expression is so personal it almost kind of has to be you know a very specific thing anyway um so i wanted to talk a bit about your new book that just came out recently um yeah sure. so performing electronic music live um absolutely fantastic book if you're reading this and that sounds interesting to you please go get it it's brilliant brilliant stuff um thank you so what about kind of the the production process when you're you know creating a track do you enjoy the most and then especially i guess not necessarily enjoy but like what specific things do you have to deal with in relation to sort of translating your productions into kind of a live setting yeah so for me i think that that's I suppose that's where what's where the, the book sort of came from is is that uh, originally what really i enjoyed about producing music is that feeling of of control over all the different sounds that i can make and i can combine and, and i'm really interested in sound design i've done a bunch of, of sound packs that, that i've released and um, some of them with Rolly and just like having kind of control over the timbre and, and and stuff was really nice for me. And I suppose I got to a point where I realised I work sort of like a painter in the studio where I layer all these ideas and I come up with this kind of this product. But then what do I do on stage? Because I, I can't recreate all that in real time unless I <laughs> I sort of duplicate myself 20 times, which I can't really do. 
so it's that, it's that challenge of what actually can I do on stage and uh, and I realized that a lot of students have got a similar challenge as well where they where they create a, a track that they're really happy with but they don't necessarily know what to do with that life so that was the original starting point but in the journey of sort of writing the book I came across a bunch of other starting points where people basically produce the music whilst they're performing it and and, and things like life coding or you know building your own performance tools which, which are things I never sort of had thought about trying myself before that but just to see kind of this whole variety of of all the different things you could do when you're on stage um, I think it's been like a really interesting journey for me hmm. yeah so specifically I guess so like so when it comes to translating and I think you talk about this in the book a bit something that always comes to mind to me at least because I've, I've seen you know a decent amount of sort of electronic or like live electronic music and it always varies greatly in terms of like what gear they actually have and what they perform with and sometimes it's literally like just a laptop or just a controller and sometimes it's like they bring all their synths and all their so i, I guess i'm just wondering like what your thoughts on like i guess quantity versus quality <laughs> or like you know especially when it comes to the whole like laptop versus no laptop i guess debate yeah yeah i think they're really interesting points i think by the end of the book i kind of got to the point of it i don't think there's like the perfect setup I just think that there's like a bunch of variables that that artists should be aware of, and then the setup that they construct will really depend on on those variables. So what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another. Like, for instance, things like miming or pretending that you're doing something that when you're not actually doing that. I think kind of a lot of electronic producers probably you know live producers may not like that, but in some contexts that's just what happens, and it, it's something that that works really well in some contexts. Like if you have superstar DJs with amazing, great big visuals and they go on stage and there's, no, there's a massive show, but it's all meticulously pre-planned and then there's a bunch of miming going on. But like the sort of, you know, the, the people that go to see those shows aren't necessarily producers themselves. So they they may not need that aspect. Whereas in, in other contexts, so audience is, is one really important parameter of like what does the audience actually understand? Mm. then it's like do you want to improvise like is it actually worth improvising in, in the scenario that you're in so I think a lot of mainstream artists have so much tech and so much power behind them that that it's not always really easy to sort of set up a system for improvisation uh, whereas in some other context I mean obviously very much depends on the artist um, I'm talking about again kind of like very very mainstream scenarios but there's other scenarios where improvisation is really really important like in, in life coding where it's, you know, where, where the audience is very, very much attuned to what happens behind the scenes and tries to kind of deconstruct that. Um, then there's things like portability. I think like for me, I've got a gig coming up in, in Washington. And if I wanted to take, you know, all the synthesizers I have here, it just wouldn't, it would be really, really difficult. So, so portability is one. I think the budget, people have different budgets. Uh, some people want to express themselves more through visuals or, or dancing and, you know, maybe they're fine with the backing track. So it's, I think it really, really depends. And I think it's just people just have to be aware of who is the audience, how much money can they spend on it? What are their actual skills and what kind of show do they want to put on? So I think just like giving out rules as to what setups are good and which ones are bad, I think it, that would have real limitations. Yeah, I never thought about, 
the sort of miming thing. That's a really good point because I've seen DJs like um, what was it? I saw Flying Lotus. I think four or five years ago. It was an incredible show. Yeah, and I couldn't really tell what gear he had to be honest because he had all this like yeah. lights and animations and stuff behind him, and there was a point where he was just like hitting all these eight oh eight drum sounds, and it was so cool. He was just like improvising. He might as he might have just been miming. I have no idea. But that's the thing. Does it matter? Because it was. Yeah. It looked like he did, and it sounded like he did. So yeah, like who cares? Like I don't know. Like it was still entertaining just because there was like a physicality to it. Yeah, exactly. And I think the same applies as well. So I think Dead Mouse has actually sort of mm. admitted that that in, in that circle, a lot of people will press play, basically. But but ultimately, there's a show that a really great show that comes out. I mean, if if you just you know if you don't have the visuals and you don't have all the other stuff that they've got on stage, and you sort of just stand there and, and press play, then obviously that that wouldn't be a show. So I think it's just about thinking about where what what creates the show in that specific context. Uh, and for some artists that might well be creating all the sounds from scratch and everything that you hear matches everything you see and, and it's all, you can deconstruct it and there's something kind of happening that's very much live. But I think for other artists, the show may just be the, the overwhelming kind of volume and, and look and sound that you get and just the kind of, I suppose, the vibe that they're creating. Um, I saw a dead mouse not too long ago as well. I think it was before the pandemic and stuff. And it was kind of the sim- similar vibes where it was like, I couldn't really tell what his gear was, but also it doesn't really, I didn't care. <laughs> like it was a good show. He was up there with the, the helmet and everything. And it, yeah, it was a good time. So in terms of that, that is an interesting thing. Cause as a performer, you know, as performers, like as, you know, both of us, I've certainly probably have significantly less experience, but um, you know, I've def- definitely stressed out about like, Oh, should I bring this? Like what kind of, you know, you worry about what kind of variables you should bring Cause it's like, should I bring this? Should I bring my saxophone? But I don't know if I bring that, would I bring the, the sampler here? And then, but then when you're an audience member, it's just kind of like, I don't know if it sounds good and it looks cool. That's it. <laughs> yeah. And I think, yeah. And I think there's so many different ways that can go. I mean, I've experienced some very strange and wacky things that are just so unique that they're just fascinating. I went to this very small chiptune festival once um, in Denmark on this Island called Bornholm. And I met this girl who basically had created her own sort of synthesizer that responded to sort of um, touch. But instead of touching it, she sort of collected a few snails from the field (laughs) beforehand, put them on. They they all survived. They were all put back in their natural habitat afterwards. But um, it just created the the weirdest and craziest kind of sort of glitch sounds. (laughs) And it it was very fascinating. So I think, yeah, so, so... it's really down to like the the artistic expression, isn't it? <laughs> the snail symphony orchestra, yeah, tune orchestra of just snails. Yeah, That's awesome. I mean, it's mental. Yeah, I've gone, I've gone, I've come across people making sound on vacuum cleaners and people having kind of things implanted and and whatever, like anything that you could imagine. Like someone's probably had an idea and, and done that. <laughs> Do you watch? Uh, there's this guy, Look Mom, No Computer on youtube yeah 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 he made like an organ out of like 100 game boys or something and it was just like i wish i had that kind of time damn <laughs> i know i know that's that's serious dedication uh, but it's entertaining you know it's, oh, it's yeah uh, yeah it's great especially when you know on an acoustic sense we really kind of have this idea that anything can be an instrument really yeah but in an electronic sense i think that's also the case because if it can produce any sort of tone or rhythm then 
that's kind of all you need. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. With your with your book, what are you kind of hoping to see change in terms of like music production education in terms of like, you know, the years going forward? Like I feel like more and more you know, institutions, schools, colleges, universities are like kind of offering music production as a sort of either a degree or as just something that really at this point should just be as standardized as like just learning piano or something or just basic music theory. So what, what are you kind of hoping? I mean, that's just kind of my idea, of course, but like, what are you kind of hoping happens with that sort of the, the future of, I guess, of music production education? Yeah, it's really difficult to say. I think there's there's a lot of changes happening in terms of the technology that that's being created. I think AI is going to play a much bigger role going forward in production. I think you know we're already at a point where most people can get their hands on production software, can get their hands on kind of tutorials online. I think as we have more and more things available and things technologically are developing more more and more quickly, I think. The main thing I think that students need to learn is is how to learn. Like it sounds like kind of such a cliche, but I think being able to read a manual and and coming up with your complete own way of doing things is almost more important than uh, than the sort of basics. I suppose I'm almost taking on the, the opposite point of what you said, which I suppose makes for for a nice discussion. Like I, I agree that there are um, there's fundamentals that are important, but as as people learn those fundamentals, there's going to be, I guess, a time where they're replaced with other things. So, I suppose right now is the the era of, I don't know, of, of skeuomorphism of of things representing what it was like when everything was hardware. Um, but I imagine the future will be more about perceptually informed audio tools and and you know just saying I want this to be mixed automatically. I want this to sound brighter. I want it to sound fatter, and then uh the tools will somehow kind of do that so i think the, the way tools work may may drastically change and i think i think that what's important is that the students learn how the stuff works now but then creatively think of other ways in which the stuff could work but doesn't yet if that makes any sense um so I think that's really important. It's just, you know, something as basic as knowing how to read a manual, I think, is 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 a skill that that's often kind of undervalued. It's just saying, okay, here's here's a here's a manual for a new synth, learn it and then make your own innovative thing with that. Um, rather than saying this is kind of the core amount of tools that you, you must know how to use, and then tomorrow a new tool comes out, but they haven't been taught how to use it and then they're stuck. So um yeah, I think for me, it's really learning how to learn and, and learning how to be innovative in in what's kind of becoming a more more fragmented and 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 diverse landscape because it's just so openly available to everyone now. Yeah, and something I was thinking about where, and it's something that's really really difficult to teach is sort of whether I mean you can teach what is like correct, you know, what is this is the right way to do something, but in terms of like what the student actually likes like what their taste is and it's like like that's not something you really teach it's something they have to kind of figure out for themselves and it was something that i you know when i was getting into making beats and stuff it took me kind of ages to really figure okay what do what do i like like i know what other people like and i know what's correct quote unquote but like what do i actually want to make and that that just takes a long time to kind of figure out yeah yeah i guess what's what's correct you know can 
can sometimes depend on the context as well. It's like, you know, traditional music mixing, I suppose, is a place where there's there's very established rules, which I love. It's, you know, they're definitely worth learning about, but then also sometimes the most successful people end up sort of breaking those rules. So so it's almost, it's, it's a tricky one because I think in order to teach a certain way of thinking, you do have to start off with rules and then you have to sort of break them. You can't, can't skip that step sometimes um you can't yeah I, I agree it's difficult to figure out what you like unless you've been almost pushed to do something that that you then sort of knew you didn't quite like and then that that made it clearer as to what you do like you know whereas if you if you just have every single possible option it's almost like that choice paralysis of like what what is it that i should do within all of this yeah you, you get stuck in a weird way especially when you have I think that's the unfortunate kind of downside of of DAWs nowadays is that it's so overwhelming the stuff you can do now that it's hard to even figure out like what do I do then <laughs> you know like you almost need some sort of limit and I guess that's you know that's the thing to do kind of like as educators be like okay let's start from like something very very basic and you know basically putting limits on yourself Yes, it. So you almost have to teach it in in a in a fairly restrictive way. Of these are the ten steps of of what you should do, and then once they've learned that, you didn't actually tell a lie. <laughs> these are these are ten possible steps, and now I want you to come up with your own ten possible steps. Um, but yeah, it's it's a lot. I think there's a lot of psychology in in that. I think if you start with the end point, it's it's very difficult to to convey that. So yeah, so I guess you have to start with some kind of standards but the problem is figuring out what those standards should be and that's entirely yeah that's completely up to the individual I, I was thinking about how like just like especially like in the early 90s just like you know old samplers that had like five second of sample time you know you had these people creating all these like crazy break beats and stuff and a lot of that stuff is like pretty straightforward like drum and bass it's called drum and bass because it was literally just drum and bass like and that's because it was like you know this is all that can actually fit on a floppy disk let's just go with that you know and that that was that was the limit you know yeah and i think whilst <laughs> it's, it's more difficult to to work when when you have this endless kind of choice paralysis um, which I think is part of the reason why I've started using a Game Boy to make music after having done a PhD in mm. <laughs> in kind of audio signal <laughs> processing and, and like learning all about DAWs. I was really craving something like very restrictive. Um, so that was like a really interesting time to to explore. I think a lot of academics actually get to a point where they try to make music in very restrictive environments or they try to create everything from scratch in something like Maximus P because they just want that challenge of things to not be so widely available and so so easy to to use, I think. Yeah, exactly. Kind of change the topic, but not really. Um, so you've done a lot of performance in, is it kind of mainly the London area? Um, it's funny, actually, because I think London is probably one of the places I've, <laughs> I've performed the least. And I think that's because I'm part of this strange kind of global niche where in every given kind of city or place, there isn't going to be that many people that are into it. But then sort of they're just like scattered across the world. So it's kind of I've performed. So most of the anime conventions I've played at, they were like more in, sort of up north. I've done a few things in London. So I did Taipa Japan, which is like a 
Japanese culture festival. I've got Comic-Con coming up, which is fun. Um, and I think, like, other than that, I did a few little bits around London, but then a lot of it's abroad as well. So I've done uh, that that sort of thing in Denmark when I went to the Chip Tune Festival. I've, I've played in Paris. It's like a kawaii cafe <laughs> where, where did where I did a gig. I've got a place, I don't know if you've heard, if you're into games, maybe you've heard of Magfest, which is like a game. So I'm playing there in January, so I'm quite excited. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm quite excited about that. Um, then, you know, in the pandemic, I did a lot of online trials because obviously I didn't have any choice. But yeah, but it's a strange one because it's so like, it's 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 really like, I know people from, from everywhere, but then within kind of my direct area, I, I maybe know sort of two or three people <laughs> that, are, that live in that sort of scene. Um, so I think it tends to be, very scattered but i think it makes it interesting as you get to kind of sometimes you get to travel and just meet other people totally so like are there anything that you noticed in terms of like different scenes between different countries or just different cities at least um i think so yeah yeah i, I guess so i think um no i definitely think so i think interestingly i think sometimes in in the uk um people are in audiences tend to be a bit more maybe introvert like they're, they're not as kind of or that maybe that was just my personal experience in the places that I've played and I'm, I'm sure again it really depends on genre um but I think one of the sort of gigs that I've really enjoyed was the one that I did in Paris because people were very very involved and very danced quite a lot were very into it um then I played at a place called Pixel Heaven which is um kind of like a retro games festival in in Warsaw and and um, I thought the people were just really, really lovely, and and, and um, maybe there was something about kind of someone coming from abroad to play that they liked. Like they were just very forthcoming and wanted sort of photos and things like that. I think sometimes maybe audiences, like especially around London, can be tougher just because there are so many musicians in this area. So you sort of like you look, you know, I, I'm probably the same as well. I can't, you know, I can't just blame others, but it's that thing of like, oh, it's, it's another musician, you know, oh, I'm a musician. I've seen lots of other musicians. It's not as unique as it's maybe in some other places. Uh, but I, I wouldn't say that one place is better to play than another. I think each place comes with, with its own sort of challenges and also nice learning experiences. Um, but yeah, so see how how it is in in washington i guess <laughs> have you played in the states at all no so I, I mean i've played online with people from boston before but from home so that was nice in the pandemic um you know because it was kind of in the u.s but also not <laughs> um it's just, yeah well, it's interesting too because a lot of that sort of like a bit chiptune sort of i feel like it kind of started as a sort of online culture and then that's sort of it's one of the many sort of like online genres that are now like sort of in the real world <laughs> and because of that there's going to be a lot of crossover a lot of similarities in terms of like you know it's i don't know what's the term like where it's like both global and local at the same time um yeah exactly yeah no i agree and i think yeah it's it's actually probably one of the genres that were quite well prepared for things like streaming gigs in the pandemic it's always been quite a scattered thing and and you have things like twitch or you have online gaming and and people almost like that thing of 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 being kind of 
in the comfort of their own home sometimes and having their sort of virtual avatar and maybe hiding a bit. I think that's some something some people enjoy about it. Uh, but I think ultimately people also love to create in that scene, love to create very bravey and, and danceable music. So it's it's nice to to being able to do that back in, in person again. Indeed. Let's just sort of close things off. Like, what are you working on? Well, either musically or academically, just both either or right now. Yeah. So, um, so musically I'm, I'm putting on a gig. I think maybe I, I had, I don't know, I think maybe you accepted the invite on Facebook. Was it you? I can't remember, but, but basically I, I, uh, I'm putting on a gig with a former student, which is, which is quite interesting. So I met, met a student, uh, called Daria Cyrene, who just graduated and also does kind of like the, the whole anime thing. Um, I mean, she's doing amazing. She's basically blowing up on, on on YouTube and Instagram, and we've collaborated before. Now we're putting on this really nerdy sort of anime gig, um, anime electro night in January, uh, Friday the 13th, uh, as you would. <laughs> uh, so it's pre- preparing all that, writing some new materials. I've, I've decided to involve my violin a bit more again, uh, in the stuff that I do, um, and other than that, sort of academically, um, I'm I'm trying to learn more about AI because I find it super fascinating. So I've been working a bit with I don't know if you've heard of Midjourney, which is like a, a tool that you can create images with, um, and I'm really curious as to when there'll be sort of things that create like moving image or 3D graphics where you download, you can kind of AI create graphics and and then reuse them. So um, that whole AI thing is, is something I want to learn more about. I want to learn more about performance in, in the metaverse. And yeah, so that that sort of stuff, <laughs> probably always more than I actually have time for, but um, that's just how it is. Yeah, that tends to be the case. What's interesting with the, at least with the visual AI stuff, I've known, like, I've known people that they've just, use the dolly ai thing and they've just used that for like album art and like at first i was like oh that's kind of lame but then i looked at the art and i was like that looks really cool <laughs> like and if you can just do that you just crank that out and that's your art it's like well i don't know it's a it's a hard thing like obviously i want people to support like you know artists and designers and stuff but then if you can do that it's yeah that's a whole can of worms that only time will tell i guess and i think it's it is something that's kind of happening the thing i mean one thing that i find interesting is i read this book by daniel zuskind uh, which is um uh, about kind of ai replacing a lot of jobs called a world without work and obviously that's the kind of depressing side of things but one really important point is that ai can replace creativity but it could also complement creativity and i think it's that second aspect that i'm much more interested in is is having it kind of in as like another band member or as as a collaborator rather than doing my stuff instead of me um i mean that's why i was quite skeptical of it all at the beginning because i thought why do i need it i can create my own music i don't need you know ai to do that for me and i don't want other people to like encroach on that space that i've worked so hard to sort of learn how to do but um, when I started playing with Mid Journey, I just realized, you know, I'm, I'm, I often think about really crazy combinations of things that I'm trying to visualize. And it's just like a really great tool to to get a feel for creative possibilities. And then again, I take, I don't, you know, I don't just use the art as it is, but then I'll 
combine it for other stuff or I use it as a springboard for something else. So I think for me, it's more of a, of a conversation than a sort of replacement of what I try to do. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely, there's this good and bad ways of, of using it, I think. Yeah, totally. All right, that was my talk with Kirsten. That was really, really interesting stuff, talking about music and a little bit about video games as well. That was nice. If you like this and you'd like to hear more, uh, make sure to listen to Lightworks. Uh, go follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and listen to us wherever you know wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye.